This episode is brought to you in part by The Good Book Company, publisher of Does the Bible Affirm Same-Sex Relationships? by Rebecca McLaughlin, a book that examines 10 claims about the Bible's view of sexuality. Go to thegoodbook.com slash sexualethics to receive 25% off with code CT25. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Hendricks Center here at Dallas Theological Seminary. And today, we are going to be discussing the spirit world in Scripture. Now, I want everybody to understand me and hear me. We are not talking about the spirit world, like how we experience it in our day-to-day life. Um, That we actually covered in a different podcast called How Christians Think About the Paranormal. So if that's what you're interested in, pause here and go over to that podcast. (laughs) Today, we are going to be concerned with the passages uh, and the indications of a spirit world in Scripture, particularly the Old Testament, and the interpretations that Christians have had, that Christians have currently, and maybe even have had historically of those passages. Um, That is where we are headed, and I am so thrilled to uh, be joined by Bob Chisholm, who is the department chair and Senior Professor of Old Testament Studies here at DTS. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. And then we're also joined by John Walton, who is a Professor of Old Testament at Wheaton College. Thank you so much, John, for being here as well. Great to be here. Wonderful. So I think we just need to get started by letting everybody get to know you all a little bit. How did you all end up interested and really spending your lives in studying the Old Testament? And then maybe if you want to add on how you're particularly interested or how you got into thinking about the spirit world in Scripture. John, let's start with you. How did you get into this gig? So I was raised in a family that was very Bible-oriented, so I basically was raised in the Bible. We learned it early, we learned it deeply, Uh, and when you're a little kid, that tends to mean that you learn the trivia. And which Testament has more trivia? (laughs) Well, of course, it's the Old Testament, and so I kind of became by default specializing in Old Testament by virtue of that basic, largely unimportant fact um, early in my life. And so I, I enjoyed the Old Testament because I just I had been trained in it um, in those ways that you are in, in church and in family. Um, when I went off to college, I, I didn't know what to major in. I didn't realize that there could be a career in Old Testament academia. I had no such idea of such a thing. Mm. Uh, and so I thought, well, if I'm interested in Old Testament, I could be a pastor or a missionary, but I those don't really connect to Old Testament. So the vocational test told me to be an accountant. And so oh I, I majored in <laughs> economics and accounting in college. It wasn't really until nearly the end of my college career that it suddenly dawned on me that there's an academic field for teaching Old Testament. And the minute I realized that, I'm there. That's what I want to do. Um, mm. That's what I'm born for. That's what I was, was raised in. Uh, that's what I want to do. So at that point, that became my academic interest. And I began pursuing that into graduate work and, and on. So that's kind of how it happened. Uh, you would almost say by accident, but of course, there aren't accidents like that. And, uh, and I feel like you know, when people say, so how did you go from accounting to Old Testament? Well, the answer is easy. The book of Numbers, of course. Oh, my word. Oh, you were <laughs> yeah. set up for that. So I guess we can't really discount like kids and quiz bowl and that kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> it could right. be laying a really solid foundation. <laughs> I mean, it worked for me. So how did you come to be come to think? And I know, well, you actually you've written very directly on the spirit world. So how did you come to think in that specific area? What was interesting or thought-provoking for you? Well, of course, I've spent a lot of time in the book of Genesis. That was, um, I had courses in it in my graduate work. I wrote my dissertation on the Tower of Babel. I wrote a commentary on Genesis uh, relatively early in my career. 
And so Genesis was an issue, and so therefore the serpent, and Hmm. uh, the whole question of Satan there. I got involved in the book of Job, and of course writing about Satan there. And so that part of the discussion has been pretty much things that I've, I've dealt with for a long time. It was really the influence of my son who pushed me into uh, going further into that and talking about demons in the ancient world and things of that sort. It was an interest of his. And of course, the book you're referring to, Demons and Spirits in Biblical Theology, we wrote together. Mm-hmm. When I say wrote together, I'm using that loosely. It's like 90% him. <laughs> but, the, but lots of the Old Testament stuff I provided. And of course, I was consulting with him all along the way. And uh, we, we truly did work together. But lots of the ideas uh, he was generating in the interest uh, was part of what he was generating. So lots of what I had done with uh, in my various fields that fit into that, we brought into it. He had me do an article for a feshrift on demons in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East just because he wanted to use that research. And he said he wasn't going to be able to do it, so I had to. <laughs> so I did that for an article. And then that ended up being a chapter in the book. And so those kinds of things. So it was really, my son made me do it. Um, but uh, it was a great project to work on, and I'm really pleased with the book and and the ways it pushes the conversation forward. Well, it's always helpful to have a father who could just do the academic work that you need done for something else over here. That's, man, I wish I had that. <laughs> yeah. Although he's much more critical of my work than I am of his. <laughs> well, of course he is. <laughs> That's how it works. What about you, Bob? How did you get involved in Old Testament and how did you become interested in it and thinking even about the spirit world? I'm assuming it's because it's a part of the Old Testament, but what about you? Well, first of all, I want to say I'm delighted that John was willing to join us today. John is one of my go-to guys on ancient Near Eastern backgrounds, and I'd like to promote his book right here. There it is. I frequently use ancient Near Eastern thought in the Old Testament. So thank you, John, for joining uh, us here at DTS today. Uh, We're excited to have you and hear what Mm -hmm. you have to say. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and my parents came to faith in their 30s, and so all of a sudden we were in church all the time when I was like five or six, and I always enjoyed the stories of the Old Testament like any little boy would. I mean, who's not going to like Samson <laughs> and uh, uh, several others that appear? And uh, But I-, I decided I wanted to be a sports writer, and I went to Syracuse University, which has a very good journalism school. And so I was planning on becoming a baseball writer, Hmm. Uh, but about halfway through my college uh, days, I had a spiritual awakening. I was already a believer, but I had a spiritual awakening, had a deep desire to um, study the Bible. And I had a pastor who said, you ought to go to seminary. And I said, what is that? (laughs) And he explained to me what a seminary was. And he said, you'll study Greek and Hebrew. I said, you got to be kidding me. Why? (laughs) So I was pretty ignorant about uh, some of the the languages and things like that. And then I was interviewing for a job with the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I ended up sharing the gospel with the guy who was interviewing me. And he said, "Uh, young man, when you get as much zeal for news writing, as you do for your faith, you come see me, which mm. I think was his way of saying you're not getting the job, but <laughs> <I'm> impressed. <laughs> and so I decided, yeah, I needed to go to seminary. So I went to Grace Theological Seminary in Indiana and uh, uh, just planning on studying theology. I just wanted to study the Bible. And I was terrified of the at the thought of taking Hebrew but I did really well in it, much to my surprise. And my professor, uh, James Battenfield, he said, have you thought about a career in Old Testament studies? And I said, well, tell me what that would look like and what that would involve. And I just got really interested in Hebrew. I did well. And uh, then I came down to DTS and just pursued a career in it. Uh, I'm not as much of a specialist in this area we're talking about today as John would be. Um, I Most of my academic career, I've been working in the prophets. I like narrative literature, so I've been doing a lot of work in Judges, Samuel, Isaiah. But I've uh, gotten more interested in this spirit world thing. Uh, Mike, Mike Heiser, the mm-hmm. late Mike Heiser, um, who's now with the Lord, um, I found some of his talks at ETS interesting, and so gradually I got a little more interested in this and started to teach Job and uh, Genesis, and so 
I find it interesting and people have a lot of questions about it and there's some difficult texts. And so I always find those challenging. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that's pretty much how I got interested in it. <laughs> it comes up in the in the literature that I'm uh, studying and teaching. Well, absolutely, yeah. And, and this actually, mm-hmm. the reason I wanted to do this podcast is um, <laughs> it's for my uh, the Sunday school class that I teach. <laughs> <laughs> because we were, uh, we were actually going through a book written by Michael Heiser, and he, um, you know, we'll we'll reference the Divine Council at some point in this podcast. But he kind of had that running through a lot of his uh, his material, and I got so <laughs> many questions about it, and and I was like, I don't really know very much about what's going on here. <laughs> And so I thought, you know what, we're doing a podcast and I'm going to find some people. Well, there you go. That's kind of like what your son did, John. (laughs) I came in, I found somebody who's going to tell me about it. (laughs) So, um, so I think before we hop into specifically talking about some of, you know, the, the entity spirit world entities, uh, I think it might be helpful to just ask, and you guys might say, well, there's really nothing, but to ask when, we're looking at any Old Testament text, but particularly the text that involve the spirit world, which is something that we can't see and, you know, seems quite mysterious. And uh, is there anything that we need to keep in mind as far as context or um, the ancient Near East, just anything like that, that we need to know about and that the people listening where you would say, you know, you can't just read what it says on the surface and that's the way it is or is that the way it is? Who wants to start? I'm going to defer to John. I'm delighted that he's with us today, and I view my role as supplementary. <laughs> John, what do you think? <laughs> so, um, so this is something I talked about quite a bit in the book that I just uh, published called Wisdom for Faithful Reading. You know, we're accountable. When, when we view the Bible as having authority, it means we're accountable to track with the authors, not just to do our own thing. And the authors are writing in a language that we have to have accessible to us, either because we learn it or because somebody translates it for us. But they're also writing in a culture. And if we're going to be accountable to them, we have to be accountable to their culture because they are writing within that culture. I like to say that Israelites thought a lot more like Babylonians than they thought like than they think like us. (laughs) And that Certainly, there are things that God was trying to do in them that would differentiate them greatly from the Babylonians or the Egyptians. But still, on the main, they thought more like Babylonians than they do like us. So my default can't be my thinking. My default has to be ancient world thinking. And then I can talk about how Israel was different, how the Bible shows them to be different, how God wanted them to be different. And so I think that's an important a perspective to take that whenever we read scripture, I mean, we've got the general hermeneutical statement, context is everything. Mm-hmm. And that includes not just literary context, but cultural context, linguistic context, theological context. And so if I'm going to be faithful to the to the scripture and its authority, I need to read it in context, and that includes culture. So that means I can't just read it as me. Because I'm modern, Western, 21st century, uh, and that's my mindset. If I just indiscriminately read it as me, I'm going to be imposing things on the text that are me, mm-hmm. that is not the text. And that opens up all kinds of possibilities for misunderstanding. So I want to try to move me a little bit off the table, as hard as that is, to say, okay, what about them? What would have they known? What would have they meant? Uh, I've got an author, which I believe is speaking uh, intentionally, purposefully, with meaning, and he expects his immediate audience, the Israelites, to understand him. But that all has a cultural setting. I was reading a book the other day, and one of the characters said to the other in, in their wild and crazy world, I just want a nine to five, a white picket fence, a black lab, and 2.5 kids. <laughs> now, 
<laughs> as an American, I read that and that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I know he's talking about a nine to five job. I know he's talking about the kind of house that would reflect kind of an ideal suburbia. I know that he's talking about a black windowed methane lab. Oh, wait, no, a dog. <laughs> <laughs> and that he's talking about, you know, the kind of average level. of That's culture. That's just all filled up with culture. And there's that's that's because this is insider to insider. Okay, and so we understand it because we're insiders. And but yet when we read the Bible, we're not insiders. And we don't like to think of ourselves that way as outsiders, but we are. The insider to insider communication is Israelite to Israelite. And so in that sense, I can't afford not to read it that way because I'm an outsider. And if they do stuff like nine to five and white picket fence, I'm not going to know what they're talking about mm-hmm. unless I can penetrate their culture. So specifically when we're looking. Oh, sure. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, yeah, I, I totally concur with that. Uh, that's why they made us spend so much time uh, working in Acadian and Ugaritic, et cetera. Right, John? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Long hours working in those texts. But yeah, I concur. I'd just like to add a couple of things uh, to what John said. I always emphasize with my students the importance of uh, contextualization. It sometimes is called accommodation, but God reveals truth about himself uh, within a context, and he will speak within that framework. For example, in Genesis, when he creates the world, there's a heavenly ocean. Well, I don't believe there ever was a heavenly ocean, and I don't believe there is one today, but nevertheless, that's the way they thought about it. And so God is willing to accommodate himself. I like contextualize a little better because it makes it a little more proactive on God's part, mm. missiological almost, where God contextualizes his revelation. And another important principle is progressive revelation. We can't necessarily you know, project something that's in the New Testament back on the old because there is a progress uh, of revelation that takes place as well. Um, so those are a couple of other elements in that um, approach to Scripture. Yeah, and, and of course, John was referring to relevance theory. We just pick up on things because we're part of the culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the great challenge is um, we, we try to get back into that world as much as we are able. But boy, there's still gaps for us. There are gaps. And it's hard work sometimes. And it requires a lot of methodological precision. Mm-hmm. Uh okay, we've got Egypt, we've got Mesopotamia and all other areas. How do we methodologically utilize those materials? Do we just assume it's all one big culture? Uh, or are there important distinctions to be made geographically and chronologically? And John has a nice discussion of method in the book that I uh, held up earlier. Um, and so uh, those those are some other elements that I'd like to mention uh, with regard to what John said. Okay, yeah, and and even in the midst of those of that approach to scripture, presumably there are different interpretations along the way. <laughs> you know, different uh, as we're trying to <laughs> figure out where we are and what it might be saying, and what you know, black web and white picket in Ugaritic may or may not mean. So when we're when we're looking at the spirit world passages where it seems like there's something else going on or there's direct reference to something going on in that world, what are the major camps of interpretation that we need to be aware of or that would be helpful for people to be aware of so that they don't think, oh, I just read what it says on the surface and this is what it is and just go on their merry way. Like what are... Are, are there any major camps of interpretation? Well, when you think about the, the spirit world as it's reflected in the Old Testament, some people take the approach that's more like demythologizing. They say, oh, demons, that was really just psychological problems or epilepsy or this or that. And so they demythologize. That's certainly one approach. There's another approach which reads from these passages a... Um, a cosmic battle that's taking place. And, you know, day by day, angels are fighting with demons right in your backyard, in your living room. And that there's this, and I call that conflict theology. That's what we called it Mm. in our book. Uh, So you've got the demythologizing camp, which is way over on one side, and the, the conflict theology, which is on the other side, where demons and angels are fighting all around us. And 
And so those could be kind of two camps that define the perimeter. But of course, there's also all kinds of uh, positions in between that can can be discussed. Did, would you consider either of those, the ends of the, that spectrum, to be outside of the realm of Christian orthodoxy? Or could you even be within Christian orthodoxy and hold to those camps? Yeah, there, there are Christians who in most every way would be considered orthodox who hold both of those kinds of positions. Okay, that's helpful because oftentimes when we talk about the ends of the spectrum, you know, it, oftentimes you think, oh, I shouldn't really want to be there, that kind of thing. It's out of bounds. But that's not necessarily the case here, if I'm right. hearing you correct. I don't land in either of those camps, but if you want to survey the landscape, those are some of the things that you would identify. God is a genius storyteller. And the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Okay. Okay, so when we talk about the, let's actually dig into some of the entities in scripture that we see in the spirit world. Um, I think it's obvious we have God, um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm probably going to move past that <laughs> math past him pretty quickly, though he deserves a lot, um, and yeah, I, I probably should not demythologize. <laughs> no, we're, let's not. Let's not at least on a DTS podcast. Um, what about? Angels. What do we see? What are some key passages, key areas where it seems like angels are in play? John, do you want to start again? Again, those are those are ideas that develop. Um, in the Old Testament, my opinion is that we should take the word fairly strictly. That is, that it refers to messengers. That's what the Hebrew term refers to. That's the role that they played. That's the role that they consistently play in the Old Testament. Um, and even when we pick up the Greek word of angelos, it's, it has that same kind of sense at its core, but yet things develop. And eventually it becomes the case, as is often so in, uh, in Christian thinking, that any, okay, I'm going to use a fancy word here, supramundane, uh, non-human uh, entity would be described as an angel. Um, and that, that mixes things up a little bit. In the Old Testament, I don't think they would have thought as the, the cherubim or the seraphim as angels. Hmm. They wouldn't think of the divine council members as angels. Um, they're the sons of God. They're not angels. Yet even by the Septuagint, they're translating sons of God as angels. And so angels takes on a, a growing uh, definition. At least that's how I, I've seen it as time goes on. Um, so... In Christian theology, we're used to using that category angels to talk about all the super mundane entities who are good guys. <laughs> and, yeah, and no, really. That, <laughs> uh, but that only happens over time. In the Old Testament, uh, it's certainly not that broad. Um, we should not, in my mind, talk about the seraphim or cherubim as angels. They have other roles. They're not messengers. Don't ask that cherub to go deliver a message. <laughs> <laughs> He's sort of oh, a bodyguard, no. isn't he? Yeah. So, so like the cherubs in Valentine's Day, like we've missed it all, right, huh? Right. <laughs> That's the Middle Ages thing. Got all mixed up with Eros. You know, I shouldn't go there. Yeah, to illustrate John's point further, like I understand Genesis 3 is you, you, you can be like the Elohim, the gods, who know good and evil. But if we start throwing gods around... In our church, people are going to think we're crazy or polytheistic. So I think we kind of default to angels, even though um, that's not really technically correct uh, right. with regard to those uh, beings. Agreed, John? Agree. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's let's 
unpack that a little bit. Let's unpack the good guys (laughs) in the spirit world (laughs) that we see in scripture. So I'm hearing you say the seraphim and the cherubim. And the can one of you talk about what you're referencing when you say the divine council? And is that the same as the Elohim that you were just talking about, Bob? Yeah, I, I would see the Elohim in Genesis 3 as God is, you know, the we, us passages. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's inner Trinitarian dialogue or trialogue or whatever. It's um, uh, that's the council, God speaking to the council. Um, and so there's a ruling body. <laughs> Uh, in the universe, headed up by God. And we see uh, glimpses of this council in various places in Scripture, like First uh, Kings 22, uh, where uh, Micaiah is forced to tell the king what he has seen in a vision. And actually, interestingly enough, and this is, I think, a good example of contextualization, it's the host of heaven that that's up there with God, the host of heaven which, if you study that elsewhere, includes the sun, the moon, and the stars. <laughs> mm. And they're deliberating. In fact, God sets the agenda. Who is going to go and deceive him? And then, oddly enough, Haruach, the, the spirit, steps forward. Uh, and uh, he has a game plan that is, uh, that is uh, authorized by the Lord. So there's a glimpse of this assembly as well. So it's called different things throughout the Old Testament. I teach a course where I just got a a whole list of ways that the assembly is referred to, but it's kind of like a ruling body um, headed up by God and distinct from God. It's not polytheism, right, John? Correct. So the sons of God um, in uh, in Job, uh, they're gathering together. That's the divine council. And in Ugaritic texts, the sons of God is the term for the divine council. And we have the divine council referenced in Psalm 82. Uh, we have it referenced uh, even in Isaiah 6. Mm-hmm. You know, Isaiah has entered the throne room and the divine council is meeting. And he's. Who will go for of, us? Yeah, yeah who, who will, will go, go for, for us? us? Yeah. You know, there's another uh, plurality in the divine realm. And so, again, as Bob says, contextualization is the key here to read it in its own context rather than impose our later theology on it. And so I think when, especially when you hear the host of heaven and that kind of thing, at least in my evangelical upbringing, Iwana, (laughs) all of that kind of world, I've always envisioned a bunch of angels. (laughs) And so to your point that you were talking about earlier, and, and just to be clear, so that's not what we should necessarily think of. And we don't know much else beyond that there is this ruling body. Is that what I'm hearing? Correct. We were told very little about how they operate. And Um, We see them again in Daniel 7, where the Ancient of Days is seated on the throne and the whole court is gathered around Mm -hmm. him, multitudes, unnumbered, gathered around. And so we get this idea of a heavenly entity. Maybe I can mention, I'll try to be quick here, but one one of the issues, lots of times when we think about polytheism, we think it's it's an issue of numbers. Uh, There's one, monotheism, and there's a bunch, that's polytheism. And that's that's true, of course, but it's not the most important thing about polytheism. The idea of polytheism is that the gods act and live in community. And the community of the gods is how they do their work. Mm-hmm. There's jurisdictions, there's roles to play. And they, the, the people in the ancient world understood the gods as acting and living and being identified in and by their community, just like people were. And so polytheism was a very natural way for them to think. They viewed themselves as being in community, and so they viewed the gods as being in community. People drew their identity from their community. The gods draw their identity from their community. And so there's the, the divine council is an expression of this idea of the gods in community. Hmm. But Israel's got to do a little bit different thing with it because they've got this idea of one God. Only one God is worthy of that title and position. Uh, yet uh, he's not a God without community. Um, and so that's that's an interesting contextual element to it. Yeah, it's a good point. And also, like at Ugarit, there's a hierarchy. You know, there's a high God like Ale, and then you've got Baal, Yam, and Mot kind of vying for power beneath his authority. But I think right. his authority is recognized 
And then you've got craftsman deities like Kothar. There's a hierarchy among the gods. And I would say the messengers are kind of like gophers, wouldn't you, John? They're kind of on the perimeter who do, you know, uh, take messages and things. At one level, yes, they are gophers. Um, uh, some of the other gods would say, no, I don't, I don't do that. Um, but <laughs> on, on the other hand, there is a certain dignity to the messenger yeah. role because when they went someplace else, they were to be received and treated just as if they were the person they were represented. That's yeah. why with the angel of the Lord, the Malak Adonai that we see in the Old Testament, sometimes suddenly he's speaking first person as God, or that somebody's bowing down. And that that's not inappropriate for the messenger role. They're treated as if they are that person. Hmm. So it does have that dignity to it, as yes. well as you go for role. Because <laughs> you're representing the one who sent you. That's why right. David gets so ticked off when they mistreat, the Ammonites mistreat right. his messengers cut off half their beard and uh, yep. half their, their their clothing. And so, yeah, you better treat the... And I, if I recall in the Ugaritic text, when Yom's messengers come into the assembly, he's not coming. They're coming as like fiery flames, and they're but they're spoken to as if Yom's there. Right. The one who sent them. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay, so those are the good guys. <laughs> what about the bad guys? that we see, particularly in the Old Testament, but in Scripture. Walk me through those entities. Well, it's one of the, the things that I noticed when I first wrote the article on demons in the Old Testament in the ancient Near East, that the Old Testament really does not have a demonology. Hmm. Um, I did a whole taxonomy chart of the different categories and where they fit in and how those categories changed over time. But even a couple of the Hebrew, the rare Hebrew words like shadim and se'erim that are sometimes translated as demons really aren't quite that. Um, mm -hmm. And so I dealt with that in that book. But that's really a remarkable thing that whether it's very minimal or non-existent at all, that they have no demonology because they're living in a world that's just replete with demon entities. Mm -hmm. And that would be that's a very distinctive difference that we see. Uh, but of course, in Hellenistic Judaism, they adopt all that demonology, and suddenly Jews have a very full demonology represented in Enoch and Qumran and all of the Hellenistic literature. Uh, but that doesn't come from the Old Testament. That comes from the Mesopotamian world. Uh, so it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. Yeah, it, it, it is. And sometimes it seems in the Old Testament as if the spiritual enemies are the other gods. The competing gods. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I personally believe that there are spiritual entities or were spiritual entities behind those gods. And so they're, they're gods from the standpoint of those. They, but it doesn't mean that the Old Testament doesn't say they don't exist. Uh, they just can't rival Yahweh. Mm -hmm. Is that the way you see it, John? Yeah, well, one of the things that I do in that book you've mentioned so kindly, uh, Ancient Years and Thought, and by the way, there's a new edition uh, that yeah. has even more the methodology and some things in it. But in that book, um, one of the points I raise is that in the ancient world, they don't think of divine existence in terms of metaphysical categories that we tend to do. Uh, for them, a god exists when he's uh, capable of acting. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why... Even in Isaiah, keeps saying, well, they can't do this, and they don't do this, and they aren't capable of doing that. Uh, if they can't act in a divine way, then for all intents and purposes, they don't exist. So they don't ask that question or address that question in the kinds of metaphysical ways that we would. Hmm. So, so if the God—I'm going back to something you said, Bob. So if the gods— of the other tribes and peoples are the are the enemies. Let's put it that way. Well, Baal is an enemy. Well, yes, no, <laughs> uh, fair enough. Um, and and uh, and then I'm also going back to something you were saying earlier, John, about the the gods or the you know the community basically of gods and that that was represented representative of those specific locations so the idea kind of of cosmic geography that there are different spirits assigned to specific physical locations and that that 
or different gods may be assigned to different locations. Is that a part of what you're talking about, Bob, as far as... As far as what you're saying, like in. the guy. <laughs> no, yeah, we'll we'll get John involved here. <laughs> but comes yeah, go out ahead. Of Deuteronomy 32:8, where there's a textual issue. Okay. The uh, Hebrew text: When God divided up the nations, He did so in accordance with the number of the sons of Israel. In the Septuagint, it's the angels of God. <laughs> And it looks like at Qumran, it's the sons of God. It's just sons of God. And so it looks like in the Hebrew tradition and in the Greek tradition, they've interpreted that in different ways. But a lot of people will argue, yeah, God delegated authority over nations mm-hmm. to um, members of the council who are sons of God. And he reserved Israel for himself, verse 9 of Deuteronomy 32. And then the passages in Daniel come into play with the princes the prince of uh, Persia and the prince of Greece, who are not human princes in those contexts. They, they're, they um, uh, I don't want to say angelic. <laughs> yeah, well, but that's what I was going to ask. So, if- Council members gone rogue is, is, I think, what Michael Heiser would say if he were with us today. Uh, and there's a battle that's going on. Uh, it's not going on in my street right out here. But uh, as you know, John talked about that extreme view earlier, but mm-hmm. there uh, there seems to be some conflict in the heavenlies that involved that hasn't uh, bearing on what is going on down on the earth. Those are the key passages that I think that come into play in that regard. Right, John? Yeah. Real quick, uh, again, just sorry, I just want to clarify. So no. you're saying that that idea would be the divine council and the good guys, apart from those who went rogue, not some kind of like community gods that are the enemies like Baal and that kind of thing. Well, you know, if if indeed you can extrapolate from those texts, then there would be maybe a spiritual entity behind Baal, and he's gone rogue. Okay. <laughs> And and Psalm 82 may address that as well. Okay, sorry, John, go ahead. Okay, so um, I probably have a little bit different position on some of those uh, some of those issues. Um, I, I'm I don't know if I'd be as comfortable calling Baal an enemy of God as an alternative to Yahweh. Um, the reason I I back off a little bit from enemy is because um, I'm not sure that he's high enough pay grade. To count him as an enemy. God doesn't feel put off because Baal's somehow challenging his authority. People get confused. Uh, so I would just want to nuance that just, you know, in terms of, yes, he's obviously not just buddy-buddy with God. Yahweh's not threatened by him. Yahweh mm-hmm. is not at battle with him. He, he doesn't He doesn't rank high enough to, to do that. You know, is, is the garden ant my enemy? No, but I might not want them there. You know, so... Uh, so I would I would wonder about the word enemy, whether that's the best way to describe him. But I get what you're saying. Um, they're certainly not on the same team by any means. Yeah. Uh, and, and Yahweh tells Gideon to tear down the uh, the yeah, uh, sure. altar in his hometown. Sure. Yeah. So, so Yahweh is does a number to... on Dagon over in Philistine territory. <laughs> uh, so, uh, again, they are they're they're in opposite you know, opposite one another. But again, enemy, I take almost as if there's a war going on and, and Baal, boy, he, he's making some, you know, he's winning some battles and, uh, you know, no, it's not, it's not that. Um, but again, that might not have to be included in the word enemy. With Deuteronomy yeah, I see 30- what you're saying, John. I see yeah. what you're saying on yeah. that. Yeah. With Deuteronomy 32, I'm, I'm very happy to follow the alternative reading that it's sons of God, uh, as in Qumran. Um, uh, but there, the differentiation that we recognized and gave voice to was that it talks about it according to the numbers of the sons of God, but it doesn't go quite as far as to say, and everything was distributed to those numbers. Uh, yes, Israel was reserved for Yahweh, but that still falls just short of saying that the geographical areas were doled out mm. to each of mm. those entities. So again, maybe it's implied. You can certainly read it there. Others have. Certainly Michael Heiser has. And um, But again, it just we tried to, to reflect uh, that little ambiguity that that's not mentioned. No, that's helpful to know. 
That really is. So what about the, um, I just, we, we've got just a little bit of time left and it feels <laughs> very not okay to talk about the spirit world and not reference Satan. <laughs> or maybe we should. Maybe we should just not reference him. <laughs> but I, 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 I really need to say one quick thing about Daniel 10. Okay, go ahead. Is the central passage. Okay. Uh, and, and that is that the preposition in Daniel 10, 13 uh, the prince of Persia, uh, it's usually resisted me or stood against me. But that ter- that preposition there is always to stand before me. It doesn't suggest conflict. So again, in Daniel 10, we take a little bit different view of that, that it's not really saying what lots of people say with it. But mm-hmm. we can't go into that in detail. Let's by all means be, be Satan's advocates. <laughs> <laughs> so what do we see in the Old Testament about either, you know, the accuser, the one who, you know, stands against God. I mean, however, I don't even know (laughs) the specific ways you guys do. What do we see? He mentions specifically two times. Okay. (laughs) Hasatan, the adversary. I I don't consider 1 Chronicles 21.1 as referring to Satan by name. I just see the, um, the Satan there as a human a human adversary that the Lord used, if you look at the Samuel parallel, that the Lord used to incite David. Now, that raises all kinds of questions, which we'll have to talk about a different time and place on that. But <laughs> So there's only two references yeah. uh, in, uh, in Job and Zechariah. So. Right. Okay. Um, the, uh, I find it helpful with my students to use two terms separately, devil and Satan. Even though, of course, Satan comes to be a name for the devil by the time we get into the New Testament. But let's separate those out. Devil as the general job description, Satan as the name of a functionary. Okay, so once we do that, the point that I make is that in the Old Testament way of thinking, in their theology, in their worldview, there is no devil slot. There's no job description for that. And therefore, when we read about this character named Hasatan, uh, we can't immediately say, oh, since in New Testament, we use that as a name for the devil, this must be the devil. Hmm. Uh, I think that that's a, a flawed transfer. And so uh, I would say that the Old Testament has no role for a devil. That is the chief of the demons who is the highest power in that realm and sort of uh, dualistically working against God. There, there is no devil in their, their thinking. So then we have to redefine Hasatan differently. Where does he fit in? And again, we don't find anything that suggests he's, he's anything but a functionary within Yahweh's system. Um, he's doing the job that's been given to him. Um, he, he raises an issue about Job, which is a legitimate issue to ask. Is Job serving God for nothing? That's, that's a very legitimate question. Mm. Uh, in Job, he does not tempt. He does not possess. He does not deprave. He does not do any of the things that we often connect the devil with. He does what God gives him permission to do. So you're suggesting he would be a member of the divine council? Possibly. I mean, again, I'm possibly. He comes among them. He comes as an outsider and insider. There's there's dispute about. Okay. And so uh, going back to what you were saying about the... Uh, real quick, Bob, I want to I want to clarify something. So when you said the devil job description, um, how was that a Hellenist idea? What where did that come from then? Yep, we start to see it in Hellenism, Hellenistic Judaism. Okay, and wh- where do we see that? Um, well, we see it in things like the Book of Enoch um, and Qumran, uh, and also, of course, it probably has roots back into Persian Zoroastrianism where it's a more dualistic approach to things. Um, so it, it comes out of those contexts. Okay. Okay. Uh, Bob, what were you going to say? Well, that John's view is one view. <laughs> there, you know, there are, there is a viewpoint that uh, views the Hasatan and Job as a little more of a sinister figure. Uh, he may be the uh, prosecutor in the Royal court, but if so, he's more like Inspector Javert in Les Miserables. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, um, he, in calling uh, Job's integrity into question, he's really challenging God's wisdom and uh, 
uh, in determining uh, who's righteous and who isn't. And God does accuse him in two of inciting him against Job for no reason. And there are more and more scholars today who are uh, seeing a spiritual warfare interpretation of Job. Uh, and uh, I'm thinking of Robert Fiall, who wrote a book uh, 21 years ago, where he really tries, because um, to support John's view, you could make the point that he just disappears. The Hasatan is there. He does his job and he's gone. Mm -hmm. uh, but those who see a spiritual warfare dimension, and really that's more God's answer to Job. Uh, you're, you're, there's a spiritual battle going on in the cosmos, and he refers to it in chapter 40 in between the uh, you know, the two major speeches. And some of these scholars, Mettinger, there's a whole bunch of them, Gibson, Lacoque, I think Ortland's new book uh, goes this way, that um, the Hasatan is the reality behind Leviathan when you get to the end of the book. So he hasn't disappeared. So uh, I just want to make the point that there are some scholars who uh, are uh, taking a different view of mm -hmm. Job and would see the Hasatan as more than just a royal court functionary. But I agree with John, there is no developed uh, view of all this like you like you see in the uh, New Testament. He only shows up a couple times. Um, so um, it's certainly not uh, developed there. But it may be rooted in, in those passages. Some of these later texts may be uh, understanding Job that way. Of course, you got to explain the talking snake in Genesis 3. There's something going on there. He's not just a snake. Uh, but Once again, sinister. He's not, he's not <laughs> mentioned as Satan. And then, of course, in our circles, the reception history, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 mm -hmm. are always brought into play. But I don't think Satan is in view at all there. If you read those passages in their context, uh, I think Ezekiel is just referring to a cherub, the king of Tyre is being compared to the first man. I follow the Septuagint there rather than the uh, MT. And in Isaiah, you've got a, a bunch of pagan kings who are taunting the king of Babylon as he shows up in Sheol, and they're drawing on their own mythology. Um, and mm -hmm. so th we've got some texts uh, in our tradition that are used to develop this Satanology in the Old Testament that I... I don't think are being used properly. And I have a hunch John agrees with me there on those. Uh, I do. <laughs> and again, we deal with all of those. In, uh, <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, yeah, the whole point of this book is to go through all of those passages and to really parse them out and, and deal with them. And granted, as you say, there are different opinions that can be can be had on them. But um, but those opinions are all different from saying this is exactly the same kind of thing as what we get in the New Testament. Right, right. So and that's, that's the point I was making earlier when I mm -hmm. talked about this back reading that goes on. Mm -hmm. there has, you have to acknowledge that there's progressive revelation and you can't just take everything in the New Testament and impose it on the old. Mm -hmm. And that happens in this discussion. It does. Yes. We, yes. There are lots of thoughts that we could add to that and we could go down a giant rabbit hole. <laughs> with that but but we won't this time um one final question i just want to ask you know so we've been in all of these passages and kind of thinking about these potential cosmic entities and all of that and so not necessarily in the sense of you know i guess to a degree they could be in our living room fighting but how should this impact how we function as a church, how we live our lives, um, even just the interpretations of it. What are the implications of having different interpretations of these things? John's looking to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in the end, I think it affects um, the whole idea of where our allegiance lies. Um, in whom do we find our hope? In whom do we trust? Uh, for all of the the challenges that we face, whether they're uh, human, uh, the result of human behavior uh, or larger uh, spiritual aspects, uh, that basically God is the one who uh, reigns, uh, that God is the one who is in control, that God is the one in whose hands history uh, is held. And that, therefore, we're not supposed to fear. 
Uh, it may be that the devil goes about like a roaring lion seeking to devour, but our trust is in our God. And I think that's the contrast we're supposed to find. I don't think the Bible is trying to give us a, an authoritative taxonomy of spirit beings uh, in, mm-hmm. in the cosmos. Uh, it's trying to get our focus the right place. Amen. Yeah, when I, when I teach it, like these Old Testament passages, I always try to interpret them in their context, as we've emphasized. But uh, when I'm teaching in the church, you're really doing more correlation at that point in biblical theology, where mm-hmm. you're we, where you are tracking the development maybe more and where it ends up in the New Testament. And so, um, the New Testament does say that there is a spiritual warfare. Paul in Ephesians six, uh, but as John said, we we don't have to be fearful um, because we serve the living God and uh, the risen Christ, and so. I always try to emphasize that and um, in my own teaching. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, what I'm hearing is that it is important to recognize the existence of this spirit world. The scripture and particularly the Old Testament in our conversation does reference it. And there there seem to be mentions that of what what was your fancy $5,000 word, John, super, super mundane, mundane. <laughs> of the super mundane, um, that there do seem to be those kinds of things happening. But like you said, John, and you, Bob, that, you know, all of it is really to direct our attention to the the greatness that is Yahweh and that we worship him. And that, again, we're not to fear, we're not to serve these other entities or anything else that we might encounter, you know, we're supposed to keep our eyes on him. So gentlemen, Easter I just, is coming. what? Easter is coming, so we celebrate the Indeed. Uh, victory of the risen Christ. And <laughs> Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, and uh, he, he has done that. <laughs> Indeed. Oh, well, gentlemen, we are out of time, but I just want to thank you so much for joining us, for allowing us to, allowing me to pick your brains with regard to this topic and kind of really work our way through some of the passages that it seems can either push people into interesting interpretations of the spirit world in our own time or um, just you know, think that they know exactly what the Bible is saying and they might not be taking some of the contextual issues into into view and that kind of thing. So we just, I just really want to thank you, Bob and John, for being here. Quite welcome. Thank you. Enjoyable conversation. Wonderful. So, and we also want to thank you who are listening um, and we want to encourage you to join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.